but there's not a moment of my life clothed in the righteousness of Christ, accepted, adopted, seated with him in the heavenly places. There's not a moment where I mess up that Jesus says, I really thought you were better than this. <laughs> there's not there's not a moment where he says, I had no idea you were like this. He never says, I've had it up to here with you. In that In that sense, I fully believe we do not have the disappointment of God over us. We have the delight. We are the apple of his eye. I'm Rush Witt, and you're listening to Straight to the Heart, a podcast from New Growth Press. Each episode includes thought-provoking conversations with leading Christian writers and thinkers. We hear who they are, what they believe, how they approach their work in ministry, and the moments and people who have changed their lives. In Straight to the Heart, we go beyond the books to connect with the remarkable people behind them. I spent a fun time today talking with Jared Wilson. He's a pastor and directs a pastoral training center in Kansas City, Missouri, as well as being assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. He's the author of numerous books, including The Imperfect Disciple, Gospel-Driven Ministry, and Love Me Anyway. We talked about how owning up to our imperfection as Christians is both frightening and immensely comforting. And the only way we can overcome the fear and enjoy this comfort is by daily embracing the gospel in deep, fresh ways. This is Straight to the Heart. So what's going on in Kansas City today? Man, I have no idea. It's been a low-key summer for us, so we've just been hanging out at home and uh, no travel the last couple of months, no uh, writing deadlines or speaking engagements. So I've been trying to treat um, May and June as kind of a, it's kind of a, a backwards sabbatical because um, I have been preaching at my church and, and and I serve as a pastor at our church. So I'm not taking a break from that, but from everything else. So it's kind of a, a church only sabbatical type. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's always yeah. nice when those seasons come along and we have a chance to to catch up or catch our breath. What what are you catching your breath with? What's what's filling your time during this the little bit of downtime? Um, long walks every day. Um, doing a lot more reading um, for pleasure. Things that mm. um, it's sometimes hard to get to when you've just got a full schedule. And um, I do have um, uh, a residency at, at our church that I that I direct. That's kind of my primary um, uh-huh. uh, front line of discipleship for me. So I've been meeting with those guys one-on-one. I just had, um, you know, three of those guys on Wednesday and another one yesterday yeah. morning. So it's, it's been good to kind of have some, some margin to spend more time with them. And so what, what's sort of the background of your life and ministry that's brought you up to this point? I think I know a little, a little yeah. bit of it just from reading. Um, but what's kind of been your path up to uh, this day and this podcast. Yeah, man, it's a <laughs> it's it's a long and winding road. Let me see if I can do the yeah. Cliff Notes version yeah. of it. I love um, it. Yeah, you know, I grew up in um, in the church and so in in uh, Southern Baptist churches, and um, you know, was saved at a young age and believed that I was called to ministry when I was in junior high school, mm. um, and so kind of went through my later adolescence. Um, yeah, with just you know, believing, knowing I'm going to be in, in, in vocational ministry. Now, you know, obviously I didn't have all the 
mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't a clear vision in some sense. Like I didn't know exactly what that was going to look like, but yeah, I just knew I wanted to serve the church. And, and I believe the Lord had called me to do that, to be a pastor of some kind. And so that's what I did. I, you know, as soon as I graduated high school, the summer I graduated high school, um, I, I, you know, had my first, my first job, um, my first ministry position was um, as a youth youth minister for a Chinese mm-hmm. church that um, was near ours in in Houston. Actually, they met in our wow. our our building um, in the fellowship hall on Sunday mornings. And so, um, you know, took that as my first role. Did some student ministry for a few years. The major sort of emphasis in ministry in those days was the turn to kind of the seeker church. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm paradigm. And so yeah. I was trained for ministry. My first mentor in the ministry is a great man that I love a lot and taught me a lot. And when he planted a church, I went to be his, mm-hmm. his, uh, um, youth minister there. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, the first book we did together was the purpose driven church by Rick Warren. And, uh, that was like the very first sort of ministry training I had was sort of working through that book together yeah. and figuring out how to do student ministry, especially, in kind of the attractional church paradigm. And that's sort of what I cut my teeth on for a number of years. Um, at the same time, however, I, I was indulging in private sin and really rotting from the inside, mm-hmm. trying mm-hmm. to maintain this outward appearance of respectability, of creativity, of, of even godliness and, um, you know, ambition in, in church life. Um, my wife and I married in 1996, so two years for me, two years out of high school. Um, and then a year later, we moved to Nashville, Tennessee. And we joined a church, uh, a rather large uh, uh, attractional church, because that's where kind of our ministry philosophy was. We, you know, we looked up churches in the Willow Creek Association and because uh, that's where our values were and found a church that, that we liked. And it was kind of an up and coming church plant and getting bigger by the moment. And um, at the same time, um, I'm trying to finish school. I'm trying to get published as a novelist. Nothing's really panning out for me. And I'm medicating with pornography and slowly crushing my wife's heart and Mm. killing my marriage and just really um, edging towards a kind of despair and, and bottoming out and the, the turning point kind of came the day uh, my wife basically said to me, I don't love you. I don't know wow. who you are. I wow. don't want to be married to you anymore. And I mean, it was, it was the, it was the punch in the gut that I needed to kind of wake up. Not, I mean, to see the, the ruin of my life, it, mm. it, it didn't, um, I didn't wow. have consolation in it, but it was sort of what, pushed me to repentance, I suppose. It turned me from my sin. I didn't quite know what I was turning to because everything that I, you know, looked to before was not available to me, including my my marriage. So I spent about a year kind of um, in, in a really deep depression, and I, I was repentant of, of my sin. I wasn't engaging in my sin, but I was really in a, a dark place, suicidal, um, like contemplating how to take myself out and living in the guest bedroom of our home and um, not knowing, you know, any day my wife could say, you know, I want you out of the house or I, I'm, you know, here's the papers I'm filing for divorce. And 
so we just kind of lived like roommates in the house. And I was every night just kind of begging God to f- do something, fix me, fix something. I had no assurance. I had no energy. Um, I was just kind of clinging to the hem of his garment, you know, um, just in desperation. And I, for about a year and then one night, and, um, you know, I, I don't remember the date, but there was one night I was doing what I was all, what I had done every night, which is basically just cry into the carpet and beg God to do something. Something happened like brother, something changed the, the, it was like the Lord reached into that guest bedroom and grabbed a hold of me and the lights came on and somehow I knew for the first time or as if for the first time that the good news was for Christians. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'd never really faced that reality. What I heard in my heart was not any kind of new message. It was the Lord saying, I love you and I approve of you. And it was exactly what I needed to hear in, in my lowest moment. And it just kind of woke me up. I had uh, this moment I, I I call gospel wakefulness. It was just like it. I, I, get, I became awake to the good news, and didn't have, of course, all the ins and outs of gospel centrality figured out. You know, I didn't. I had not heard that phrase. I was not. You know, I didn't go to a a gospely conference or you know those sorts of things. Um, it just kind of came th- through the wreckage of my life, and man, things just began to change in my world after that, not immediately. I mean, my marriage wasn't immediately fixed or anything like that, but I'm beginning now to, to walk with a joy and an energy that I didn't have before. I'm loving my wife for the first time without any kind of string attached, any kind of like, this is contingent on your response. Uh, You know, she continued to be cold towards me and I just every day sacrificially loving her what I didn't realize, but of course was praying for was every day the Lord was using that to soften her heart and see that I had changed. And at the, uh, um, you know, after a long while, um, you know, she, um, expressed to me, um, it was actually the same day. And in one morning she said to me, I want you out of the house, which was like my worst fear come true. And yet because of what had happened to me, um, by the hand of the Holy spirit, I thought, okay, God is with me. He's good. I, you know, this is my worst fear come true. And yet, if I have Jesus, I have everything. And I told her, okay, can you give me through the weekend to figure out what where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do? And she said, yeah, you can have the weekend. You can have the weekend, but I want you gone on Monday. And I was like, okay. And she left for work. And at lunchtime, she called me and she said, I don't want you to leave. I know you've changed. I, I don't know what that means, but, you know, let, let, let's figure it out. And what she would say now or what she said after kind of looking back was like she knew I, I was different for a long time. But in her mind, it was like she was too hurt. I had hurt her too much that it was just sort of like it's too late. I, yeah. You know, you, you've 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 burned me too many times. That's great if you're different now, but that's too late for us. You know, I, I don't want anything. And the Lord was really kind of softening her heart through that, seeing that even in um, the coldness of her response, the lack of love, that I was not going to stop loving her. And in her mind, she's like, it must be real because he's never loved me without 
you know, some sort of expectation or that sort of thing. And so the Lord began to stitch us together. Well, brother, this whole time we're in this sort of attractional megachurch where the preaching is increasingly self-help, moralistic kind of less and less Bible, almost no Jesus. If Jesus shows up, it's like as some sort of moral example, maybe Jesus was good, was nice, so you'd be nice kind of thing, but never grace, you know, never the gospel, just a lot of self-helpy type stuff. And suddenly for the first time, and we were in that church almost 10 years, for the first time, we're beginning to feel like this isn't feeding us, like this isn't actually, um, you know, uh, we never realized how deficient it was um, because we just didn't have the the vocabulary or even the value, the you know, for it. Suddenly we're craving grace. We want to hear more about Jesus because of what he's done in our life. And we go on Sunday and it's just like, nope, no Jesus today, you know, and um, and that became really kind of in, in the midst of that, I was asked to begin leading the young adult ministry at that, that church. And um, uh, uh, and I said, yes, because I saw that as an opportunity to, to preach Jesus and, and to begin to minister the gospel. And so that was kind of my first sort of Bambi on the ice moments of like, how do you do this gospel centered stuff, you know? And um, our, our thing grew a little bit, but as the young adult ministry and sort of a, you know, seeker sensitive church model, expositional preaching seems weird to everybody. Christ centered, you know, ministry seems weird to everybody. Even the music we were doing, which was just like stuff off the radio, even that seemed weird because it was explicitly about God and not really kind of vague kind of, you know, spiritualism and things. And so if you liked what we did, you typically didn't like the main church. And if you liked the main church, you didn't like what we did. And so we ended up with a church within a church, which is just not what we had set out to do, but it's what happened. And eventually my wife and I realized we didn't want to raise our kids in that church because we wanted them to be in a place where, where Jesus was the, you know, the main point of everything. And so I just went to the elders, um, and said, I'd like to take the young adult ministry and plant as an independent church. And, um, and they said, yes. Yeah. How did that go over? Yeah. (laughs) They said, that's great. So I did, I planted a church and it was kind of my first foray into lead pastoring, um, you know, and, and pastoring into the gospel centered, Mm -hmm. um, you know, where, uh, where was this church? This was in Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville. So yeah. 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 Um, and then a few years, years into that, my wife and I, um, were getting kind of, um, restless in the sense of like, so we'd been in Nashville 12 years and, um, doing ministry in the Bible belt was really difficult. I, I saw guys that, that I think were called and were wired for it. And I didn't, I felt increasingly like, increasingly like an alien in, in, you know, there. And, um, so I just began to look like, well, where could I go? Where could we, you know, go that, um, you know, might feel like more of a missional opportunity and, And we'll be right back. Now, this is exciting. Jared Wilson has a new book called Friendship with the Friend of Sinners. The Bible calls Jesus the friend of sinners, but it's hard to imagine what friendship with Jesus really looks like. We so often don't even know how to do friendship with the people around us, despite all the options we have to connect. So how are we supposed to feel that close to a holy person? perfect and invisible God? How do we see Jesus as the real person he is? 
And how do we experience true friendship with him when we struggle to maintain true friendship on earth? Well, in his book, Friendship with a Friend of Sinners, Jared Wilson explores what it means to be a friend of Jesus. Through candid personal stories and insights into the Gospels, he uncovers easily overlooked details of the close relationship Jesus had with his followers. He reveals the ways we often hold Jesus at arm's length and shows how to draw close to him through radical honesty, consistent communication, and unconditional love. If you found yourself lonely and longing for connection and friendship, it's time to discover the remarkable possibility of closeness with Christ. Look anywhere you buy books for Jared Wilson's book, Friendship with the Friend of Sinners, The Remarkable Possibility of Closeness with Christ. And now back to the show. What was Um, it that made you feel like an alien in kind of that Bible Belt culture of church life and... I don't know, Russia, except I've always felt that way. Even mm-hmm. I grew up in Texas um, in, in the Rio Grande Valley, and then we moved to Houston, and Houston is is home, basically. But I feel like an alien there. I've never felt – everywhere that I've grown up, uh, you know, everywhere I grew up, I've felt like I didn't belong. And I, I, I feel that way about the South for some reason and about the Bible Belt. I like to visit, but I just don't feel like – I don't know. It's I, It doesn't feel like home. And so when I began to look where we might go, I wanted to bring my, you know, my wife wanted to come home. She wanted to um, step away from work and, and, um, you know, be at home with our kids. And um, we looked um, at this church in Vermont that was looking for a pastor. And we moved from suburban Nashville area to a town of about 600, 700 people in, in rural Vermont. Um, The church was about 40 people. Um, it's a 200 plus year old church to it's the furthest thing from sort of the seeker type deal that I could get. Uh-huh, yeah. And you got and, as and, far away from the South as you could. That's right. And, uh-huh. That's right. Another two hours and you'd be in Canada. So yeah, um, we, uh, there was something really appealing to me about that and refreshing to me about that. The clarity Vermont is the least church state in the nation, or at least it was at that time, least least church. Um, and I just, I like the idea of ministering in a place where people who aren't Christians know they're not and, and, and even don't want to be. <laughs> um, whereas in Nashville and to some extent, the places I grew up in Houston, it was still pretty Bible belty and pretty, you know, cultural Christianity. And I just, you know, I'm grateful for the, you know, guys that do ministry there. I don't think it's easy to do ministry there. Um, I don't think either one is, harder or easier than the other. It's just how you're gifted and how you're, you know, how you're called. And I, I just found it really, um, I don't know. It felt like home. New England felt like home to me and still does even after we've been in Kansas city eight years. So I, you know, went to pastor that church, saw incredible growth, um, you know, a revitalization of that church basically. Um, and um, number of years in, uh, as the church continued to grow, I began to feel as the only staff person in the church that my leadership reservoir was too shallow <laughs> for what what was needed, which was a shock to me. Um, you know, I planned to be there forever. I wanted to be there forever. 
um, I, I miss it. I think about it every single day. Um, still do. And, um, but my wife and I both independently of each other were beginning to believe the Lord was calling us away. She, she didn't want to share that because she knew how much I loved the region and, and loved being there. I didn't share that because I was afraid of people saying, I'm, you know, that I had lied or, you know, that I was you know talking a big game or trying to climb a ladder of some kind or something. But eventually in conversations, we realized, oh, we're both sensing this. There must be something to it. And we were just kind of praying about it. And I came in 2014 to Kansas City to preach at the the very first For the Church conference at, at Midwestern Seminary. And um, I just thought it was a speaking gig, you know, came and did, you know, my thing, spent some time with the folks here, getting to know them. I felt very much like an alien there because... I didn't have a seminary degree. I did. I never went to seminary before that. Um, so to me, it was like, it was intimidating to preach at a seminary. Cause I thought these are going to be all these smart people who are like, Oh, they're going to be picking apart all my stuff. You know? Yeah. I know um, how that feels. I know how that feels. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't feel good. No. And, and I'm just not an academic type guy either. I mean, I, you know, I read a lot and write a lot and I think, I think I'm, you know, I think I'm pretty sharp, but I just, I wasn't a seminary guy. So I didn't know anything about the culture. I didn't know anything about the environment, but I came and preached and went back home and thought that's all it was. And two weeks later, they called and said, um, hey, we're really trying to rebuild something here. We're, we're you know, um, Jason Allen had been there, I think, at that time, two years, three years, maybe. Um, and they were beginning to, to try to build a, um, a you know, build a team to kind of help rebrand the seminary and those sorts of things. At the same time, in the same week, I got a call from a friend of mine, also in Missouri, at a church who wanted to talk to me about coming to his church and 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 working at his church. And I just thought, this is so strange. I don't have any background in the Midwest at all. And here in the same week is two phone calls to talk about two opportunities in Missouri, you know, both in Missouri, one in St. Louis, you know, one in Kansas City, you know, and I just thought, this seems like it could be from the Lord. I, I don't know. And so I just engaged both conversations. I just said, yeah, let's figure it out. And my, you know, my friend in St. Louis flew me down to spend a day with the campus pastors at his church and just to kind of, you know, see my rapport with them. And in some ways, the job thing that he wanted to talk to me about was kind of a dream job. Um, but it was still kind of vague. It was sort of like, hey, Jared, what do you, if you could do anything, what would you like to do? And I kind of, you know, pitched you know, like teaching pastor, writer, residence, those sort, you know, that's the, if you're shooting for the moon and he was like, yeah, that's kind of what I think that I'd like you to do. And I was like, man, in what universe does somebody just say, Hey, whatever you want to do. Right. Whereas the Kansas city thing was like, we want you to come do content strategy. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. Uh, <laughs> we, we want you to help build a website. I was like, I've never built a website in my life. I don't know anything about, I, I like, I go to websites. Would that, would that help you? Know? Um, but for whatever reason, the more I engaged both conversations, it was more and more clear that um, coming to Kansas City was the right door to walk through. And um, yeah, so we came here in 2015, and I started out in the communications department, uh, helping launch a website called For the Church, and kind of overseeing social media and um, you know doing some of the branding, marketing type stuff. It was a very small team then. Uh, there was only like five of us in the communications office and everybody was kind of a Swiss army knife. So like everyone's doing 10 different things. And, and now the office is 
you know, they've got it's very specialized to one person who does this one specific thing. And I don't you know, hardly know anybody in that office anymore, but several years into doing that, um, you know, got my master's degree there and now pursuing my doctorate. And I've been in, uh, in a faculty role for the last three years, I think three or four years, uh, which is, that is a dream come true. I get to serve as, uh, you know, teaching pastoral ministry, um, and they created an author in residence role for me as well. So it, it kind of worked out what I was trying to, you know, trying to get in, Can- in, in St. Louis has worked out here in Kansas City. And we'll be right back. If you're enjoying this conversation, you should check out Jared Wilson's book, Ruth, Redemption for the Broken. It's part of the Gospel-Centered Life in the Bible series of New Growth Press. Jared Wilson provides a clearer picture of Jesus through the story of Ruth. Ruth, Redemption for the Broken can be adapted for one-to-one discipleship, small group, or large group settings. The Comprehensive Leader's Guide is included in the text, making it an easy-to-follow structure to engage men and women. By studying the book of Ruth, readers can enjoy the romance and drama of this compelling story with understanding how it applies to their own lives, finding Christ's undying love for them through this unforgettable biblical narrative. Jesus is the truer and better of every character in the book of Ruth, and everything in the Bible points to him. Ruth reveals the truth that there are no sinners, no failures, and no victims so far gone that the sovereign hand of the Lord cannot reach, rescue, and even revise the story of their lives. Visit NewGrowthPress.com to learn more about Ruth, Redemption for the Broken by Jared Wilson, as well as the rest of the Gospel-Centered Life in the Bible series. And now back to the show. So there's a, there's a theme here. I want to put a couple things together. There's a theme here that's been running through your story. So whether you are in Houston or you're in Nashville, uh, other places in the South or in Vermont, it seems like no matter where you go, you, it it could be that you actually are an alien (laughs) because everywhere you go, you feel like an alien, but, but in all seriousness, I think there's something to that picture and feeling that's so true because the kind of experience of God's grace and understanding of the gospel that we're talking about today is, as you know, theologians would put it, an alien righteousness. It's an alien, it's it's not, it's not of our world, it's not of our natural makeup. And so it comes into our lives and changes us. And then we have no choice but to feel that kind of sense of I. I don't belong. I don't belong really anywhere. I'm made for a different world, and now I'm operating on on that uh, that kind of worldview or or uh, that that world's system. This this better and true world, and I think that's what so many people, um, when they hear about feeling alien, some of what we're discussing in your story feels alien to them. Uh, and they need help coming to terms with it, you know, in terms of being transparent. And so I want to put that together with what I think comes up a lot in your story and in what you've written and what you're doing in ministry. And that is, I think, helping people cheerfully embrace their imperfection, which is so hard to do. It's frightening. 
It's not something that we want to be transparent about, but it is important. I think that's at the heart of gospel wakefulness, as you put it. Am I right about that? I think so. I mean, you know, part of it for me in in being able to do that today mm-hmm. um, and, and having been able to do it for a while is because I went so long yeah. trying to trying to be the image, trying to impress, trying to look a certain way. And it just brought me to the end of myself. And it, it doesn't mean that I still don't struggle with wanting to look impressive. It doesn't mean that I still don't struggle with wanting people to like me and all, and all those sorts of things. But for the, for the most part, like I just have this uh, awareness of like, that goes to emotional, relational, spiritual bankruptcy. <laughs> and it, you know, um, if, if my story can help others, it, it, it's the most important thing that's ever happened in my life. And it, it makes more of Jesus um, to, to speak confessionally, to not act like I have it all together. And because of what he's done for me, I, I want to, you know, you know, make that, um, you know, regular aspect of, of my ministry today. And I think that's often what it takes is someone kind of coming to the um, sensing somehow like th- there's no there's no hold in this. There's no uh, value in this. It, 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 it's not actually getting me what I even yeah, the in the end really is want. Empty. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so being able to confess um, or just to be transparent about, you know, about brokenness and, and those sorts of things, you know, James relates that to healing. I think there's something about healing. And then John, it's really fascinating in first John where he says, um, you know, walk in the light as he is in the light. Um, it, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, which I find really fascinating because he's not just saying if you, you know, confess or if you walk in the light, you have fellowship with God. He, I mean, you you do, but he says you have fellowship with one another, which makes me want to say, okay, how is my walking in the light? related to, you know, relational connection with others, with the church and and in the social dimension. And I think what John is trying to say, or, or what John is, is, is saying is that if we don't walk in the light, if we're not living in terms of authenticity and transparently, we don't really have relationships with each other's real selves. We just have yeah. relationships with each other's kind of Best version, yeah, 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 with with each other's religious avatars or or something, you know, yeah, which is is what we do in church. We'll do that. That's what I was going to say. (laughs) Yeah, which is the common the common struggle in every church is because of because of this personal struggle that we all have that I feel like I am the only imperfect person, and I can't let anyone know about that. All the while, every other person is feeling the same thing. And yep. therefore we're never connecting and being able to really, um, you know, help each other the way that, uh, obviously the Bible frames out the picture of Christian community. And, uh, and that is just, a you know, a real shame. Uh, and it also is, you know, I'm thinking as we talk about the, the role of the gospel in this, one of the most beautiful things in my mind uh, about the gospel is that it does not simply free me to admit that I'm imperfect or that I'm a sinner and to do so only in a groveling, despairing way. 
that would be more of the message of the law because the law tells right. me I'm a sinner, but it doesn't offer me any grace. The gospel actually gives us a chance to cheerfully, not minimizing our sin, not making an excuse for it, not tolerating uh, you know, our, our sin struggles, but an ability to with hope say, I am a sinner uh, or to echo words of the past that I am a great sinner in need of a great savior. And I have one. That's right. And that's a totally different mindset of being able to cheerfully well, only, embrace that. I mean, yeah, it's, it's only believing that we have a great savior yes. that you can, that you can admit it in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. at least admit it in a sense of, of freedom and boldness. You might do it as a, as a way of manipulation or trying to get pity or something, but the, the only way we can, you know, actually uh, embrace this kind of transparency is by truly believing that if God's for me, who can be against me? You, you, you might judge me, you might condemn me, you might reject me, but I can risk that because the God of the universe is on my side. He ha- he has, uh, you know, he's he's holding me in his hand, and no one can snatch me out. Um, it's it's so liberating to to fully embrace you know, um, what God has done for us in, in the good news. It's amazing. Are you familiar with a, it's an older Puritan book called the gospel mystery of sanctification by Walter yeah, Marshall. Yeah, Walter Marshall. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, read it, I read it a few years ago. Yeah. Yes. And that has become one of my favorite books as I've, you know, just been taking what are for me always little steps in these directions. And there's one, well, there's one particular uh, quote um, or point that's made in his book that really is, is always stands out to me. And he says something, I'm, I'm not going to get it exact, but uh, he says something to the effect of no one will ever run to their enemy for grace. And he says, you cannot love God if you have this constant suspicion that he's actually your enemy. You have to first be assured of his grace before you're going to be willing to come to him. And that really comes back, that really brings back in what you were saying earlier about how it's changed the way you see and express the gospel, uh, in, in, in particular in preaching, in which there is this front-loading of the indicatives of grace before there's any imperative coming in to tell you to do something. The gospel is coming in to give give us courage and help. And that's just one of, that's a line from that book that has always stood out to me because it was really fundamentally worldview changing in terms of how I saw, really, I, I mean, really how I, how I see God and my relationship to him and the, the way that that brings the kind of cheerfulness uh, to say, I am a sinner and I need to turn to, to the Lord again and again and again. And I can, because he has, he has promised me his grace. Uh, I think that's a, a incredible point that is coming through what you're, what you're describing. Yeah. I had a guy at my church, uh, several years ago after the service came up to me and he said, um, um, you know, Jesus has never, um, he's never disappointed in you. And I thought, um, well, that sounds like heresy. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. thought that that can't be I think right. He's always he's always disappointed <laughs> because so much of my life I felt like, yeah, yeah he's got to be disappointed in me. Yeah, and um, I don't. I'm not. Again, it's another one of those things. Like you know, I'm not a hundred percent sold on this, but I'm much more close to this yeah. conclusion. He said, he said, Jared, to to say that Jesus is disappointed in you is to 
is to believe that he's surprised by how you are. (laughs) And I said, well, that's true. He's never surprised by how I am. So I'm trying to hold intention like, okay, I can grieve the Holy Spirit. I can quench the Holy Spirit. My sin in some sense grieves the Lord, yes. But there's not a moment of my life clothed in the righteousness of Christ, accepted, adopted, seated with him in the heavenly places. There's not a moment where I mess up that Jesus says, I really thought you were better than this. <laughs> there's not there's can't not a moment just, where he says you just do it right once. <laughs> yeah, he 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 never says like I had no idea you were like this. He yeah. never says I've had it up to here with you. Yeah. Um in that in that sense, I fully believe we do not have the disappointment of God over us. We have the delight. We are the apple right. of his eye. Yes. Um and that man that is so heart-changing and power, you know, empowering for um all, all you know all the times of yeah. our lives but especially the times where we know we have messed up where we yeah. have sinned um to 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 be able to run to um as you said yeah you know run to the one who has grace ready of you know readily available to us that's good advice that, that's advice i need that's advice I think everybody needs. And so I appreciate you sharing that. And I really appreciate your story. I wish we had, you know, I wish we could hang out again somewhere. <laughs> and that's not just podcast talk. Like, I sure. really mean that. I really enjoyed uh, just hanging out with you today. And just we've got all story. the time in the world, Rush. We've Talking got, we've got all things. of, we got all of eternity to hang all out. All of it, just a sure. couple aliens <laughs> in eternity. Right. Yeah. So, so I hope we have a, a chance to maybe do that sometime. Uh, if I get around Kansas City, uh, I can try Very to find nice. you and yeah, have some coffee and hang out. I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, brother. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Straight to the Heart, a podcast from New Growth Press. Our next episode releases next week, and I look forward to seeing you there. <laughs>